Go ahead and grab some scripture. Get some scripture open in front of you. Uh, Bible app um, through the QR code on the screen. Or uh, if you brought your own hard copy, that's great. Uh, If you didn't, there's a Bible under the chair somewhere around you. So you can grab one of those. Thanks for um, all the questions about Braden. Braden's uh, recovering well in Arkansas. Um, I uh, went down there after he, uh, it was, if you don't know, it was kind of his fracture and dislocation of his ankle, and so it's kind of gruesome. If you like pictures of that stuff, I got pictures. <laughs> and uh, in fact, I'll put them on the screen right now, just kidding. <laughs> and <laughs> the vomit bags are in the chair back in front of you. Uh, but he's doing well. Thanks for the prayers for him. I had surgery this last week and um, on the road to recovery. It's great to be back here with you guys. Um, we're continuing this morning in our series in the letters of John. And so in your scripture, you can get to 1 John chapter 3 is where we're eventually going to be here in uh, a bit. We've mentioned each week in this series that John has these three themes that he circles back on uh, throughout this letter. And we've mentioned these each week, and we want to continue to put them in front of you because it helps to frame out the letter and to understand what John is doing and where he's going. Uh, That first theme he circles back around on is foundational doctrine. The second theme he circles back around on is obedient living. And the third theme he circles back around on is impassioned encouragement. And so this morning will be just a moment on foundational doctrine, and then really the bulk of our time is on obedient living. And as we get started this morning, uh, I've been wondering this week, as I've been preparing and working through these scriptures that we're going to read this morning, I've been wondering, do I really understand God's love for me? So what I've been processing, do I really understand God's love for me? And I would present that to you guys as well. Do you really understand God's love for you? Do we really understand God's love for us? See, I think when we talk about God's love, every person in here, I am sure of it, you've heard, God loves you, right? You've heard of God's love for you. You've heard that phrase. When we speak of God's love for us, it just sounds so simple, so foundational, right? And if you're anything like me, when you hear a sermon on something that is very familiar, you may be thinking right away, well, I already already know about this. I was hoping he was going to say something I didn't know, right? I came here this morning, and I hope he was going to teach on something that was new for me. But see, I'm afraid that if you've been a believer for a while, the simplicity and the beauty of God's love, if you're not careful, it might roll right past you. If you're not careful, if you've been a believer for a while, the simplicity and the beauty of God's love can just roll right past you in these moments if we're not careful. So let's jump in. 1 John Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, we'll eventually work down through verse 10 and then consult a number of other places in the scriptures as we move along here. These verses speak to our identity. That's how it's going to start. That's the foundational truth that we're going to start with, just to touch on. And then John's going to build what he's going to say on this foundation of this truth here, the simple truth of our identity. 
And again, this will function as a foundation for what he'll say in a second. And so chapter 3 of 1 John, starting in verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called what? What does it say? Children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it does not know Him. It's that connection between us and the Father as His children. And these verses make me ask, what could he have called us in these moments, even in these scriptures, in other scriptures for sure he already does, but in this moment, if we were reading this, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called what? And I started thinking about all the things that could be in there instead of children. I thought of chosen, saved, justified is a good one, loved which are all true, but that's not the word that's here. All those things are true, but it's not what's written here. And then I thought of what titles could describe us as Christians. What could be there in that scripture? What kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called? Well, what else would be true? Citizens, right? Citizens is in his kingdom. Friends, saints, heirs, believers, all true, right? All those things are in the scriptures, but child, and not just child, his child, right? When we hear that, we might be so used to it that it doesn't sink in, that we're called his, his children. Again, the, simp- the simple stuff sometimes is what passes us by in moments like this or in scriptures like this. And I just began to think of an example that maybe we could communicate to grasp the the depth of being called his child. You could imagine if you were down driving in the city somewhere. I was down in the city yesterday coming back from the airport. And and regularly on different street corners, you see people who are in great need. And just imagine there was someone that you saw in great need. It would be very generous and kind of you, even loving, to help them. And you're like, well, well, how? And let's just roll with this analogy for a minute. Let's just be creative here. Let's say you were able to somehow help them financially. Maybe you went a step further and maybe helped them find a job and maybe a way to provide for themselves. That would be generous and kind. Maybe... You go even farther and you help them overcome some kind of addiction in their life. Wow, that would be a crazy story, right? Maybe you help them buy a house. Maybe you give them a large sum of money that helps them in some way. But it's a whole different level, get this, if you were to adopt them into your family, right? It wouldn't even translate, right? If you were You rolled your window down on a street corner where someone was in great need, and you're like, hey, I don't really have much money, but want to be a part of my family? Can I just adopt you? Hey, just climb in the back seat. I'll introduce you to the kids, your future brother and sister, since we're going to adopt you. That's a whole different level, right? And one that's not even really expected of us in our society. I mean, no one pulls away from that situation or any situation where you're around someone in great need. You're not going to be shamed for not adopting them into your family, right? You're like, what, you only gave them five bucks? 
What about adopting them into your family? What kind of human are you? Right? It's not even expected in our culture. It's a whole different level. Helping them would be enough, so to speak, without going to that point of adopting them into your family. And I'm so thankful that's not where God stopped with us. I'm so thankful he didn't just help us some. I'm so thankful he didn't just stop at calling us chosen. He didn't just stop at calling us loved. He didn't just stop at at providing salvation for us. No, he went even farther. It wasn't enough even for him to save us by sacrificing his own son. But he went into crazy territory when he called us his children. He went into crazy territory when he went that far. Because he technically didn't even have to do that. I mean, salvation would have been enough. And the analogy gets even crazier if we think about the person that we would help in this life, in this world. I mean, the analogy gets even crazier if the person that you adopted into your family was actually at fault for the death of your biological child. I mean, that gets even crazier, right? This person who is in great need, they also were responsible for killing your biological child, and even still, you adopt that person into your family, which is what God did, right? Considering it, because of our sin, Jesus laid down his life. It's absolutely nuts. And so as John asked, what kind of love has the Father given us? It's a great question. What kind of love has the Father given us? Well, it's an illogical love. It's a crazy love. It's an unfathomable love that this God gives us as an undeserved gift. The gift of sonship and daughtership. And I want to be clear as we're laying some foundational doctrine here, that that regardless of, of what we might have heard, regardless of what we might have believed, regardless of what culture might tell us, we're not all God's children. And you may think that or, ha- or hear that of, oh, we're just all God's, all the people in the world are God's children. And the only caveat to where that could kind of vaguely be true is that he created all of us. And, and I understand that maybe what they're alluding to is that we're all created and so we're all his children, but that's just not what scripture teaches. Look at John, the gospel of John, flip over to the left. This is just a short verse, but I want you to see it in black and white here. As we consider our sonship, our daughtership, the fact that we're children of his, what does that look like? How do you become his child? Well, John in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 12, lays it out really clearly how we become his child. Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did what? Receive him. To all those who receive him, and then he gives further clarification, who believed in his name, in the name of what? Who? Jesus. He gave the right to become what? Children of God. That's what the scripture teaches. And so if we have this idea that all the people in the world are God's children, that's what scripture teaches. And at this point, we never just assume that all of us in a room this size have received him and believed on his name, right? Have taken that step of belief and received Christ as their Savior and Lord. Just as John said, for all those who've received and believed, then he gives 
this right to become his child. Maybe you've just always assumed you were God's child because of your family upbringing or because of this idea that all the people in the world are God's children or maybe because of your own morality or like, I think I'm good enough to be God's child. Maybe because of that, you've thought yourself of yourself as God's child. If that's you, if you want to become a child of God today, if you're like, yeah, I don't think I have received and believed, then there'll be opportunity after the service to chat about that, love to point you to Christ and what that looks like. And I'll mention it at the end of the service again, if you'd like to become his child for the rest of this life and into eternity. Love to walk you through that. And again, I'll mention that again at the end of the service. And so, what kind of love has the Father showed us? What kind of love has God showed us? Well, that he offers sonship and daughtership. And when we truly, by his spirit, grasp that kind of love, if it doesn't roll by us this morning, when we truly grasp the weight and gravity of that, get that, that kind of love changes us. That kind of love changes us. See, philosophies don't do a great job at changing us. Self-help don't do a great job at changing us. Receiving that kind of love, that what we're talking about here in the scriptures, that kind of love changes us. Our title, our position as his child has been settled for an eternity. That's settled when we receive and believe on his name. That's settled. Our title, our position is settled. Our future's secure. But get this, we're still in process of change. Through Christ, we've been declared righteous before the Father. That's our position. But functionally, we can still act righteously or unrighteously, right? And this is a good distinction to make because we've been declared righteous, declared his child before the Father through Christ's work, and yet today I can choose to act unrighteously, right? I can choose to act in sin. And that's where we get to just because we've been declared his child and declared righteous doesn't mean he's done working in us, right? It doesn't mean that when we come to Christ, we've reached this element of perfection and then we'll no longer sin, which is how some will take the next few verses that we've read, which are just out of context. God is actively and presently transforming us as believers into his image. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 if you've got your scriptures open. It'll also be on the screen. 2 Corinthians Uh, chapter 3, actually. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. This is just one verse. We're not going to read it all in context here, but it's just one verse to point to the fact that our transformation is a process. That there's a process going on in us because of his great love for us. We've been declared righteous, and yet he's making us righteous. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, Beholding the glory of the Lord are what? What does it say? Being transformed. Declared righteous, being made righteous. Both true there. Being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Being declared righteous, but yet being in process where he's refining us and growing us and purifying us, right? And I, I begin to think, okay, what's a good analogy for that? Where's, where's something I can grab a hold of with that? And the first thing I thought of was 
over 10 years ago, came here, although I'd been in vocational ministry for a while, came here with the first official pastor role, right? The first time I, I was the pastor of a church. And in that, in that moment, my first Sunday here, I'm the pastor of the church, Fraser Valley Baptist Church at the time, right? Did I have pastoring figured out? Yes, I did. I, I, had, it all. <laughs> I had it all figured out. Of course not, right? Do I have pastoring figured out now? Don't say no too loud. <laughs> no, you don't. No. <laughs> of course not. I've got this title. I've got this role, but yet I'm still being transformed and molded into who a pastor should be. And, and Lord willing, by his spirit, if I'm still pastoring, if I'm still alive at 65, that'll still be the case, right? I'm still learning. I'm still being purified. I'm still being molded into who a pastor should be, although I've had the title for a long time, right? It's similar with our lives as believers, this process of being transformed, this process of wrestling with sin in our lives. And see, understanding this reality about the Christian life will help us understand what John's about to say as he moves into what obedient living looks like, as he moves into this next phase here. And let me say this about what we're about to read. He's likely, John, in, in, the, in his letter, he's likely writing to, in response to people at the time who were minimizing their sinfulness, writing to people at the time who were minimizing their sinfulness, minimizing the sin in their lives as believers. We've talked a little bit about Gnosticism. It's a form of belief, uh, kind of uh, um, has elements of Christianity in it, but very much not Christianity, and that was present in first and second century here. And, and um, it's hard to describe it just in a couple sentences um, because different sects kind of had different um, beliefs, but it's now been since categorized as Gnosticism. But it says something like this. As long as you have the right knowledge, as long as you have the right knowledge, as long as you believe or know the right stuff, it doesn't really matter what you do in the flesh. They're separate. And so there was a weird distinction going on with these people that John was writing to, these believers that had maybe fallen into some of this Gnosticism that said, well, the spirit is pure, and so what I do in the flesh doesn't really matter. And John's like, oh, no, no, that's not the case. That's not true Christianity. So he's going to draw a hard line in the sand these next few verses because, again, he's writing to people who have minimized their sin or put their sin aside and said, well, what I do in the flesh doesn't really matter matter that much. So keep that in mind as we read. And knowing that, it'll make sense why John draws such a hard line in the sand with regard to deliberate, ongoing patterns of sin. In light of some who were likely saying, ah, sin, your actions, the flesh, not a big deal. It just matters what you believe or the spirit kind of level, the soul kind of level. He's got some, John's, John will have some strong words to say. Let's continue. Chapter 3, verses 3 through 8 in 1 John. Um, he's going to ask what our conduct should be like in light of our identity. If we've been given this love, we've been shown this gift of love and been called his child, well, how does that affect our conduct? How does our identity shape the way that we live? Specifically in addressing sin. What does sin look like? What is sin? 
How do we deal with it? What's going on there? And so keep that in mind as we read, and especially as we read, remember the context of the letter, that we don't read this and say, well, if you're a Christian, you'll no longer sin at that point. That's not what John's saying. John's already made provision for that earlier in the letter. And so chapter 3, verse, uh, starting, uh, picking up in verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure, as Christ is pure. Verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. There's a great definition of sin, lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Verse 5. You know that he, speaking of Christ, appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. Verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. There's the evidence that there are people that are minimizing sin or teaching elements of Gnosticism. Paul, I mean, John says, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Do you see the line John is drawing here, the contrast that he's making? He's drawing a line here, again, a hard line. If you're a believer in Christ, you shouldn't be comfortable with ongoing deliberate sin in your life. Can I lay that out for us? If you're a believer in Christ, you shouldn't be comfortable with ongoing deliberate sin in your life. If you know Christ, you know the very reason he came was to take away sins, to kill sin. And so why would we allow it to live in our lives? Verse five, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And in verse 8, he's making a contrast again. Ongoing patterns of sin, areas where we've quit the fight, originate with the devil, the enemy. That's where that comes from. And John says, the reason Jesus appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so what sense does it make to allow the enemy a space to operate in our lives? I like lawn care. I didn't when I was 13. But now I like lawn care. I like taking care, and we don't have a whole lot of lawn care up here in the high country. If you're driven by my house, I have like a, a yard like this big, and it's green and mowed all the time because I love it. I love taking care of the grass. But you know if you've taken care, if you've, you've done any serious work in lawn care, you know that the enemy are weeds. especially up here, dandelions, man, I'll kill them all. And then the next year, I'll come out of my house at some point in the spring, and I'm like, what? Where did these come from? And just picture that I called someone in to spray the weeds, right? Picture I call someone in to spray the weeds, and I tell this guy, hey, I've got this yard that's about this big, and I want the weeds sprayed. And, and if I told him, hey, uh, I want all the weeds dead, I want to have good grass growing, but this section of weeds over here, don't kill these because I like these. I like these weeds, this little section here. It wouldn't make sense, right? Why would I allow something to flourish that I'm also intentionally wanting to put to death? In the same respect, 
What sense would it make if the, the weed guy showed up, Kevin Regeer, he was my weed guy for a year or two. He'd come spray the weeds in my yard, if you know Kevin. He'd be like, well, I got some leftover product. I bring it to your house. And Kevin, if you're watching, that was my impression of you. What sense would it make if Kevin came over, sprayed the weeds in my yard, and as he sprayed, I was going behind him and just planting new weeds? It doesn't make any sense. That's what John is getting to here, right? Why would you allow something to flourish that Christ came to put to death? It doesn't make any sense. That's why John's drawing this hard line in the dirt. He's not saying that if you're a believer, you should never sin anymore. He's pointing out the incongruence of of saying you're a child of of God and yet allowing sin to flourish and live in your life. Let's continue here. Chapter 3, we're going to continue with what John says and point out a little more truth about the incongruence of Christ in our lives and allowing sin to flourish. Chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. It doesn't say no one born of God ever sins again. Okay, can we agree that's not what it says? It says no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is, is not of God, nor is the one who does not Love his brother. You may remember as we've spent time in John's work, whether it's been in his gospel or even here in the letter, we've considered the analogy that John uses a lot of abiding in Christ, right? We've talked about that as a church family, what it means to abide in Christ, because that's a phrase that John uses at different points, and it's kind of ambiguous to us on the surface. What does it even mean to abide in Christ? We've said this, abiding means to live in, right? That's why we talk about our house as our humble abode, kind of, right? It's, it's from the same root. And so abiding in Christ, we've described as making your home in Christ, that Christ is where you reside. Making your home in Christ, abiding in Christ. And with that picture, we can begin to frame what John has said about patterns of sin and relationship with Christ. Patterns of sin and relationship with Christ the contrast there and what that means together. A child of God's home is in Christ, not in sin. And if we read through here, we begin to pull out some themes here that would say a child of God, they abide in Christ and they don't abide in sin. They don't live in patterns of sin. And so I'd ask, are you making your home in some pattern of sin? Have you made yourself comfortable in some pattern or area of sin? Are you abiding in some area of sin? Living in it? Are you comfortable in some pattern of sin? And I begin to think um, in this analogy of, of abiding in my house and that that's a place where I'm comfortable. Later today, at some point, I've got some other things I need to do, but at some point this afternoon, I will go into my house, I'll turn on some football. I'll sit down in the love seat recliner. Julie's not here, unfortunately. I'll be alone in my love seat recliner. <laughs> I'll get a soda. I'll probably put on some more comfortable clothes, even if it's for an hour. 
There's a little lever right by the seat. I kick that thing up. My feet will be up. I'll be watching football. I'll probably have a soda in my hand. I, I may even doze a little bit. Comfortable, right? Comfort. And in this analogy, I would ask you, are you abiding in that kind of comfort in Christ or have you made your home in some kind of pattern of sin? Abiding in sin versus abiding in Christ. Maybe for just a second, we can pull the curtain back on the enemy's schemes. If any of you have read C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, that's kind of the vibe here of what's gonna go on just the next couple of minutes. I wanna pull back the curtain on the enemy's schemes as it pertains to patterns of sin in our lives and see what he's up to. We know from scripture he's the father of lies, the tempter, the deceiver. And if you find yourself being tempted in a pattern of ongoing sin, it's likely the enemy has convinced you of some untruths. So just three real quick untruths that the enemy may have convinced you of in your pattern or area of sin. Lie number one, it's not that big a deal. It's not that big a deal. I mean, it's not as big as some other sins. That could be lie number one, that the enemy, the deceiver, has convinced you of in this area or pattern of sin that you've been abiding in. This is the enemy minimizing your sin. And then on each of these lies, I want to kind of do a formula. So that's, that's the truth and what it equals, what it leads to. So picture an equal sign. When you buy into that lie, what does it equal? What does it lead to? Well, it leads to spiritual apathy in your life. When the enemy convinces you that your sin is no big deal, the equal sign, it leads to spiritual apathy in your life. So there are other reasons you could experience spiritual apathy, but one of them may be that the enemy has convinced you to minimize the sin in your life, which led to spiritual apathy. Lie number two of the enemy, you'll never overcome this. Anybody heard that one before? You'll never get over this. This is the enemy encouraging your discouragement. You're already discouraged. You already feel the battle, right? So this is the enemy encouraging your discouragement by saying, hey, you'll never get over this. Just give up. And what that leads to, the equal sign, what it leads to, leads to feelings of hopelessness in your life, right? When you just feel like you have to accept that you're always going to struggle in this area, the enemy's convinced you of it, there's no victory to be had. That leads to hopelessness in your spiritual life. Lie number three of the enemy sounds like this. Look at your sin. You're a mess. There's no way you could be his child. Anybody heard that one before? Look at your sin. There's no way you could be his child. This is the enemy attacking your identity, what we talked about in the very beginning, that we're children of him. Does it make sense that the enemy, in wanting to defeat us, that he would take the very truth that we're supposed to grasp, that we're supposed to be so incredibly in awe of and turn it upside down and say, yeah, you're not his. This is the enemy attacking your identity, which leads to doubt, spiritual doubt, self-hate, 
loneliness in your life, if, if that's where we're supposed to find significance and identity is in our childhood with the Lord through what Christ has done, then if that is severed, then it can lead to a real loneliness in your life. For sure, spiritually speaking, if not beyond. The enemy is very clever, right? The enemy is very clever. Sometimes all we need to do is to see his plan for what it is. To bring his plan out of the shadows and into the light that we might see the truth of the gospel instead. And maybe here at the end we go back to how we started this morning. Remembering our identity. You can follow along or you can just listen. See what kind of love. See! Didn't even point that out earlier because I wanted to show you now Do you see it? First word is see. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. He's given it to us. It's a gift that we should be called children of God. And I love it that I think John knew that we were going to doubt that. And so he immediately followed that up. See that you are God's child. And then he adds this, and so we are. As if he knew the enemy I would come right after that, convincing you, no, you're not, because look at your sin, look at all these things. And he says, so you are. A child of God, and so you are. And if you find yourself in patterns of sin, if you find yourself wrestling with temptation and sin, may we, this morning, lean into some of the truths we've already covered in 1 John. There's some key truths that are running throughout the letter, and I want to point us back to them at this point in chapter 3. I'm just going to read some of these, and I want us to soak in the truth here as we consider what John has said here in chapter 3. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. I'm writing to you because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you because you know the Father. I write to you because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. I want to give us some time to process some of these truths in prayer before we go to him and sing and take communion. 
And maybe you spend some time reflecting on the truths that we've read here. That's where the power is. If you find yourself in a place in life where you're like, I just feel like I haven't heard from God in a long time. He's spoken clearly in his word this morning, right? Pointing to our identity as believers. First of all, what it even takes to become a believer. Receiving him and believing on his, on his name, on his finished work. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And in that moment, given a new identity, but not yet a completed work. And so as we battle with areas of sin, as we wrestle with patterns of sin, as we see the incongruence of abiding in Christ and yet making our home in sin, we fall fully under Christ. And say, Jesus, be my advocate. Be my helper. That I might live in a way that's reflective of my identity that you've given me as your child only by his spirit Jesus we thank you that you are our advocate that you are our helper we thank you for pointing out in your word the the incongruence of patterns of sin in our lives and saying we abide in you we confess that we find ourselves abiding in our Sin, making ourselves comfortable in areas of life or patterns of sin. By our confession of that sin, you bring cleansing. We pray that you would give us great clarity in the lies of the enemy as he seeks to keep us in patterns and areas of sin. We thank you, Jesus, for the scriptures we just read that you came to destroy sin. You came to abolish sin. By your spirit, may it be true in our lives more and more. Jesus, we thank you for your body broken. We thank you for your blood shed for us. We thank you that you came out of the grave and give us life now. We pray these things in your name alone.